Welcome to the Fellow Traveler Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Lesperance. Listen in as I host humble discussions exploring the diverse expressions of Christian spirituality, tradition, and beyond. Enjoy, and safe traveling. Hello, my fellow travelers. Thanks so much for listening in. I've really appreciated all your support. If you would like to support me further, consider becoming a patron on my Patreon. Simply go to patreon.com forward slash morningsun underscore fellow traveler, or just click the link in the show notes. Thank you so much. I love you. Well, here we are again, here with Chris Lazaro, my good pal of many years now, with whom I've had, we've we've gone head to head on several philosophical and theological discussions that have been very charitable, but have only strengthened our and deepened our relationship, our friendship. But uh, how are you doing, Chris? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Thank you for having me on again. Excellent. Um, I always enjoy our conversations and how, how deep and into the weeds we get usually. Absolutely. And last time we had you on was with Cal, and we had an atheist Christian dialogue I don't know if we really even got talked about religion that much as or spirituality as much as metaphysics, which I guess you could say what's the difference in some <laughs> sense, you know? <laughs> You're not wrong. There's definitely some overlap. So anyway, I wanted to have you on solo this time to hear some of your thoughts on, I guess, like, quote unquote, atheist spirituality or materialist spirituality. What does that look like? I guess, you know, the most obvious thing is that there is this this form of dualism within any theistic framework. Mm-hmm. Whether it's mentally meant like maybe it's just it's just the way we divide things up in our minds mentally, or in a literal sense, we we recognize that there's some sort of duality between God and creation, God and material, or spirit and material. Which, you know, over the past few years, I've kind of recognized that there has to be a level of oneness between all, um, between, like, all things. But but there are some distinctions, right? There's me and then there's you, right? Mm -hmm. I'm a a separate consciousness to you. But at the same time, our consciousness are interwoven within one another by nature of being humans so there's something it's both right it's like both and it's a it's a weird um paradox i guess but anyway we can get into that more later but um yeah i've always enjoyed our conversations chris is also you know you're a really interesting guy because i feel like you have a you're very integrated Mm. um you you don't just a lot of people like they talk a lot they philosophize a lot, um, but they don't really like live in a certain way. And I, I feel like 
Chris kind of integrates his understanding worldview of life more or less with his way he lives his life, right? You, you work as an occupational therapist. I do. I do. How do you get into occupational therapy? Well, I've always enjoyed helping people and, mm-hmm. and I'll first thank you for your, your kind words. I appreciate of course. that. Um, I got into occupational therapy because I've always liked helping people. I've always wanted to help people. Um, and through scouts, mostly through scouts, you're, you're doing a lot of things that are hands-on and you're helping people at that same token. Um, and I knew I wanted to do something kind of medical, but I was like, I don't want to like deal with all the really, really gross stuff or trauma stuff or, oh, yeah, you know, I, I played you. with being an EMT at one point and I was like, oh, I don't want to deal with, you know, like people in that state of distress. I want to see people get better. Yeah. Um, so I heard about physical therapy, um, and then I saw occupational therapy. So, um, I kind of fell into that where I could help, you know, I've always, like to help children specifically, you know, through scouting and through a couple of other jobs at summer camps or after school programs. Um, so I've always really wanted to help kids get better. And I wanted to have a job where I was up moving around and helping people that way rather than, you know, being at a desk or something like that. So like when you, when you approached pursuing a career like this, were you thinking ahead into the future? Like, okay, what is the job that I actually want to do? Mm-hmm. I'd say I was. I'd say I was. I, I wanted to help kids. I wanted to do some teach them active skills. And occupational therapy is all hands-on yep. active skills. I feel like most people just they just go to college just to go to college. Right. Um, I feel like that's a lot of our friend group probably. But at the same time, uh, yeah. And then what they end up doing, it kind of just like a, comes about over time. But it seems like you had like a vision in your head. Mm. And... That's funny. What so? What is occupational therapy? I, I guess like I have a decent idea of what it is, but I guess just for the sake of other people. Yeah. Um, so I'll start with the uh, I guess the more common view of it, and then I'll integrate it into a more philosophical, spiritual view of it, and then maybe we can I, that can be a good segue. Sure. Um, so occupational therapy, as it is conventionally, is a uh, is a practice in which um, a medical practice in which Occupational therapists help people essentially do what they need to do to function in daily life. So we look at physical and the cognitive. So again, it's kind of funny how the mind-body dichotomy Mm -hmm. weaves its way into other professions, Mm -hmm. right? So um, occupational therapy, we apply cognitive approaches um, so that people can be functional. So whether that's using strategies like to-do lists or visuals or um, behavioral components, like we, we take a lot from ABA. Um, where we have we sometimes have to do discrete trials, um, and then the physical component is we we are the upper body I guess portion of when you go to like a rehab, lower. right? So like PT PT will do low, the lower extremity and the back and the trunk and maybe the neck, um, but we do the arms. So if anybody gets like a arm injury or anything of that sort, you'll probably get splinted and treated by an occupational therapist. Um, which is, which is, I'll get into that later, which is kind of funny. Um, (laughs) um, so occupational therapists are kind of throughout, you know, skilled nursing facilities, schools, acute care. Um, and we work on all so many odd skills like oral motor, like how well you use your mouth and, uh, and that's kind of where we integrate with speech. Speech Mm -hmm. does more of the swallowing where we do the feeding. 
Um, so that, actually bringing the food to your mouth. Yes. Speech therapists in nursing facilities work on actual swallowing liquids and whatnot. It's kind of gross, but yeah, <laughs> I'm not interested in that level of that kind of speech therapy, but no, no, I do so much feeding at work. It's crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, so I guess in aggregate, what occupational therapy is, is helping people do what they want to do in life, how they can function independently mm -hmm. in life and access the world and the community that they that they want to. Mm. Um, the philosophical end of that is um, we have a model that I really enjoy, and it's called um, the OPH model, Occupational Performance of Health model. Um, and we look at one's doing, being, belonging, and becoming. So through one's ability to do, through doing and participation in the world, you're able to be, you're able to self-create in a way. Mm. That helped you become what you haven't been yet. So let's say like manifesting, manifesting, right? So mm. let's say you were, I don't know, you're a tennis player, and then you got an arm laceration because you know some incident at work <laughs> or whatever, um, and you couldn't play tennis again. A part of your being has been altered, mm. right? Because yeah. you have lost that identity of being a tennis player. Mm. Wow. So by being, I guess, healed through that way, mm. through doing, right? Um, occupational therapists are trained that all exercises need to be purposeful. All exercises need to have, have an occupation in them. Um, it's not rope. We can mm. do rope exercise like you would at a gym, um, but that's not the core of what we're supposed to do. Um, so through that doing, you can manifest your being, mm. right? So if that tennis player got better and got to play tennis again, they have become the tennis player again. Yeah. And they are able Their to belong. identity has come to fruition again. Yes. That was actually what my master's thesis was on. Wow. Occupation as identity in recent college graduates. I was mostly looking at work um, mm -hmm. and how one's identity of their work um, mm. manifested. It is so, and it's so, uh, it's such a prevalent thing in our culture. It's like, oh, hi, my name is Chris. Oh, what do you do? Mm -hmm. I'm an occupational therapist, you know? It's, it's like, it's not like, I don't know, I'm, that's not who I am. Right. And a lot of people, a lot of people that like, that don't like their jobs, man, when you think about they that, suffer. imagine not liking your job, you're spending eight hours of your life not liking your job. So like your identity is being vitiated. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Exactly. It's, it's incredible. Exactly. Cause you're living a contradiction to how you would see yourself every, wow. every single day. Um, and I, I'm actually going to work on a paper sometime soon. I'm going to coin a term for that, um, occupational monotony, oh, where okay. where um, occupational deprivation is already a term, and it's when you aren't able to do something. So think of somebody in a wheelchair, <clears throat> if they don't have the accessibility um, to, I don't know, let's say drive a car, for instance, yep. they are occupationally deprived. So that's a justice issue, right? Mm. Occupational monotony um, the, the issue with OT right now is we always view things through a functional lens. Yeah. If you're functioning, you're fine. Yeah. And that's not always the case. So it needs to go to the next level. It needs to go to the next level where it's not always that you're functional because everybody who goes like, I'm just thinking like office job, you drive to work, even though you're functioning, performing at the office job, it's, and it's purposeful enough because you're making money, mm. um, and providing for your family, uh, per se, you're not reaching that higher level of that becoming wow. or that belonging. So I think that's, that's going to be an, a future issue for the that's profession. Really, that's really fascinating. I, I like how the way you think about your therapy, your therapeutic like process to 
to your work because a lot of times it's just like, all right, I'm getting the data, mm-hmm. meet, meeting these benchmarks. I'm, on paper, everything looks good, you know? Mm-hmm. But you're actually thinking about like, how can we make this more integrative to life? Exactly. Um, how can this, it almost, it's like a lot of times OT is just thought of as like, just an extra thing that you do, extra thing to help the kids. Just exercises. But no, it's actually, you're trying to, you're, you're making this a necessity. Like a, the more you integrate it into reality and and truth and, and goodness. And I don't know, into practicality of life, but not just practical, like practicality. I don't even like that word. Like for this, because it's not just practical. It's essential. It's essential. That's the word. It's essential. It Mm -hmm. is essential for sure. There's a, there's a, I was talking to um, the professor I write with, Steve Steve Taft from Washington University. And he was telling me one time, he was at a conference talking to another professor. Um, I forget his name. And that that gentleman believes that um, OT, the best form of OT is one in which OTs don't exist. The best form of occupational therapy is where it is so integrated in society. Everybody has the accessibility needs. Everybody's able to do, be, belong, and become. And everybody hmm. would innately know how to do that for other people who are maybe disabled wow. or anybody. So that's it's a pretty radical view. You know, it's so um, funny because that's like it's um, it really ties into spirituality a lot, mm-hmm. especially like Judeo-Christian spirituality. You have this concept in in um, theology called eschatology. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times, and basically, I don't know if you're familiar with eschatology. I'm not, no. It means the study, <clears throat> the study of the last things, the last times, the end of the age. It, it, and oftentimes when we think of eschatology, we think of like the end of the world. Like rapture? Like rapture. Okay. Yeah, so that's, that's a form of eschatology called premillennial dispensationalism. Or I shouldn't even say it's, yeah, it's premillennial dispensationalism, <clears throat> um, which I've talked about at large on this podcast, but that's just one. See, when I growing up, I thought that is eschatology. Mm-hmm. You know, I thought that's the only eschatology there is, but it turns out there's a lot more. There's a lot of other views and I won't go into the weeds of it, but basically <clears throat> um, eschatology, you think of teleology, right? Yeah, correct. The end mm-hmm. and not the end as in, what I don't like about the word end is that it, it makes it seem like, oh, completed. Right. Or, or actually, no, I think we just misunderstand the word completed or finished. Mm-hmm. The end of things. Because the end of things does not mean all things have ended. What it really means is something new and renewed has begun. Mm. And, and that's really, so when I think of like a healthy view of eschatology, um, is when things are being perfected, things are being completed, um, things are when it, when something's brought to their telos, when someone is brought to their telos, mm-hmm. then they are completed as a being, mm-hmm. right? Like, um, and and what I picture, like in, in the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk, he has this vision of um, a time where the knowledge of God would would be would cover the land as the waters cover cover the world basically like mm-hmm. where people would just do things 
just because it's who they are, you know? Mm -hmm. They would just do good things just because of who they are, you know what I mean? And also in, in Hebrews, it talks about, and, and I think, like, this has actually been quoted a lot by people who are, like, very kind of patriotic, mm -hmm. and, and they've kind of attributed it to America. But really, in reality, it's just ta it's more an eschatological vision. Oh, and also it was it was quoted by George Washington, too. Oh, wow. And I think that's why it has a lot of ties to um, – Oh, you know what it is? Yeah. It, so the funny thing is the reason I quoted it from the letter to the Hebrews, which was might have been written by the Apostle Paul, but probably wasn't. Um, but it actually comes from Malachi, which is an Old Testament prophet. And George Washington um, quoted it, too. He said, may may the children of the stock of Abraham who dwell in this land continue to merit and enjoy the goodwill of the other inhabitants. While everyone shall sit in safety under his own vine and fig tree, and there sh and there shall be none to make him afraid. So it's like this kind of eschatological vision of of the future, where like things, where tele teleologically creation, as it is, will be integrated, and everybody will be integrated with one another. Mm -hmm. So th what I'm saying is like. I like that you're you're moving in this direction of integration. You're not just doing a job, showing up, doing your whatever it is seven <laughs> seven thirty to no, your eight to eight to two thirty eight or whatever. 30, yeah, yeah, eight to two thirty. It's not a really night. really long hours when you work in school. <laughs> tell you what, if you get into public schools, it is golden. It's the bee's knees. The bee's knees. You get all these week vacations. You get the summer off. You get paid. It's incredible. But yeah. But that's what I was thinking of in that terms. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and occupational therapy actually has its roots because um, it was founded in 1917. It's a relatively young profession. Oh, yeah. Um, has its roots in the early evangelical Christian movements around the moral um, imperative movements really? around. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So so that that's what I was kind of talking about. There was a time in America where it was actually a, a, this big dominant strain of Christianity there's this form of, Christi uh, of eschatology called post-millennialism. And it has to do with, like, there's this one obscure script, this one obscure passage in all of the scriptures. It's in Revelation, the most mm -hmm. ex extremely confusing, unclear book. And people have gotten so hung up on this concept of the millennium. So basically, mm. like, there's this concept that, like, there's going to be a millennial reign of, of Christ, um, that Jesus is going to reign over the earth. And so what we're talking about, like the rapture theology, they take it that they believe Jesus is going to come back before that millennium. And it's not a literal millennium. It, it could it could because in ancient Hebrew, a thousand years is representative. It, it, it means something like it means an age of some mm -hmm. kind. I'll get into the weeds in it. Why not? Um, I was actually just listening to a really great um, discussion between these three um, Kind of like reformed um, pastors and theologians, they they got together. This was like fifteen years ago. They got together and just to discuss their different their different positions on eschatology. And so, yeah, you got pre millennial, which basically means that they believe that Jesus is coming back, like physically, right um, before this millennial reign over the earth, and that's when the the rapture will happen when he comes back and take us away, and then. 
I don't, I don't really get how that works exactly. And I don't, I don't take that position anymore. I, it's right. the one that I grew up with. And then there's all millennialism, which basically thinks that like, Oh, we can't take the millennium uh, literally. It, it represents, it's representative of a way in which God reigns over his earth, but doesn't necessarily mean like he's going to literally come in physical form and reign over the earth for a thousand years. Now they don't, they don't deny the resurrection or they don't deny that Jesus is going to physically come back. But then there's post-millennialism, which is also a form of amillennialism, which basically believes that we are living in that millennium where God is reigning over, over creation. And then at the end of that millennium is when he comes back physically. He conquers death. Hmm. He reconciles all things to himself. And then, um, There'll be no more dying. And it makes me wonder, like, could that practically look like something, you know, as technolo technology advances? I could just that, thought could that. Could that technically, like, maybe there will be a time when we... Is heaven actually the cloud? Well, well, that, well that's <laughs> what I'm wondering is, no, will there, be, yeah. will there be a time when we actually do find a way to not die? Like, where our technological advances, and that's the way in which Jesus, God reigns over life and defeats death by way of which would make sense because this tracks with the old testament humans were created in god's image to be his image in creation to be his representatives in creation so if we by way of jesus by way of the spirit of jesus overcome death through technology and that might mean like Neuralink and ai and yeah, all yeah. this sketchy stuff i don't know it, it makes me wonder but anyway back to my point it's pretty wild before premillennial dispensationalism really took hold in America, which wasn't actually until like the mid 20th century, um, w with folks like when, when you got into like, um, I don't know, I don't know when it really got big. Like the, the 70s, you have Hal Lindsey. Hal Lindsey wrote this book called The Great Late, the Great Late Planet Earth, and that had a huge impact. And then later on, you get the, the Left Behind series of movies. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you're familiar with them somewhat. Yeah. But basically the whole point was like, it was, it was just one very, actually very modern because premillennial dispensationalism in rapture theology is very modern. It actually started in the mid 1800s with hmm. this guy, John Darby. It was based off of this guy, this woman actually at a prayer meeting. They were having like a tent meeting, prayer meeting. And she had a vision of every, of all these Christians getting caught up in the clouds. And then they built the whole theology around it, which I think is a really bad idea, especially in light of, at that point, 1,800 years of Christian historical tradition, which did not teach that. So <laughs> anyway, <laughs> going back in the early 1900s, you have Christians who had this post-millennial view. They had this, uh, this energy and belief that God is reigning right now. He, Jesus is reigning right now. He's at the right hand of the Father where he ascended, and he's reigning through us over the earth. Where, where his mm. images, you know, and so they had this, they had, there was this big push for social justice, yep. societal change. And I mean, that led all the way up to like the new deal. I think that inspired stuff like the oh, new absolutely. deal, which, which was the beginning of like the social network and social um, safety nets that we have today. Mm -hmm. So anyway, yeah, it's just fascinating. That was my point. Seeing how we're kind of talking about teleology, eschatology. But you were saying that's when OT started. That is. Yeah. And I think speech therapy started like, it really started to get bigger in like the 60s and 70s. But it probably had some beginnings oh, absolutely. beforehand. Most definitely. I don't know the history of it, actually.
Yeah. But anyway, you were saying OT started in the 1700s. Yes. Yes. Out of all those movements. I mean, it has some influences from transcendentalism and... Um, and World War One was highly influential too. World War One had um, a big, yeah, that had a big. Everybody impact. had, I mean, shell shock. I mean, we didn't know that was PTSD then. So treating that cognitive, they piece, called it shell shock. They called it shell shock. Wow. Yeah. And then, um, and then the physical pieces, burns, amputations. You know what's crazy? I don't think I ever heard the term PTSD until like maybe the past 15, 20 years. Like I always heard shell shock. Oh yeah. Like, growing up in the nineties and early two thousands, like. People talked about shell shock. It wasn't until like pretty recently, right? That they right, right. They coined they had, it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Everybody was just using shell shock, and it almost, <laughs> it almost writes off the issue. Yeah, it's, oh, it's just shell shock. It's just shell shock. Don't worry about it. You'll be fine. <laughs> You'll be fine. Drink your milk. Have your coffee. You'll be fine. Smoke your cigarettes. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. They're good for you. Beat your wife. You'll be fine. Jeez. <laughs> well, I mean, that's what it caused a lot of times. I mean, imagine, imagine growing up in the fifties, mm-hmm. in the sixties. And your dad is an is a World War Two vet who like saw action in Germany or, or in Japan. Yeah. Who like probably got shot, probably shot people, you know, his seen so much suffering. He, he learned, he was conditioned to be in fight or flight all he, the time. He was conditioned to be in flight or flight all the time. He was also conditioned to be abused. Mm-hmm by military i mean the military it's abuse it's mind control it's like they scream at you they dehumanize you to get you to mold you into what they want you to be that you will take any command shoot this village of children yes sir you know right funny funny side story um my my grandfather was in world war ii he was uh a sergeant he was a tech i think it's like a tech four or five he worked on tanks at the base so he was like in france and germany and belgium fixing the tanks he wrote a letter to his sister you know just saying hey i'm okay i'm here and i'm in belgium i'm doing fine and his commanding officer some lieutenant saw the letter and said you can't write this this is you're not supposed to write this because you're giving us away and then my grandfather being an italian got all angry and in his face and was like, no, what do you mean? I can't write this letter. It's my sister. And probably swore at him and threw mm-hmm. a fist at him or whatever. And he lost, they demoted him a rank for, for it. So I just thought that was, I just think oh, it's yeah. funny how they teach you to like be all. And it's funny that he didn't. And yeah. I mean, there's a consequence for there it, obviously. Well, cause they can't have people leading people if they're not going to just be pawns. Oh no, they gotta be, they have to be pawns. Gotta be strategic in those, yeah. in those endeavors. But, it um, is crazy. But yeah, that's OT. That's OT that's... in a nutshell and <laughs> World War One and World War Two and Eschatology. <laughs> Eschatology. It's been an eventful twenty six minutes. Identity. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> anyway, so that's essentially what OT is. What does that look like day to day? Day to day is um, you know, going I'm push I push into classrooms a lot because I don't like pulling kids out. I uh, I feel bad when I do it. because um, I don't want them I work with middle schoolers and high schoolers, so it's especially, you know, there's a social thing. So I try not to pull kids out, but I most I mostly work with kids who are in sub-separate programs with you know behavioral and cognitive concerns. A lot of kids with autism, um, working with them on life skills and emotional regulation through sensory strategies. So yeah, I just I see my caseload. I perform evaluations, attend IEP meetings. Very similar to speech, I'm sure. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm not a, a CCC SLP, so. I don't do like meetings and testing and stuff like you that. Gotta do, you get to do the fun stuff. I'm grateful for. Yeah, I just work with the kids and track data. It's like it's pretty, 
It's actually a really good setup. I'm not mad at all. Uh, <laughs> it's excellent. So tell me a little bit about um, your upbringing as it as it pertains to spirituality or Christianity. What does that look like? Sure. Um, in the in the last podcast we did, I mentioned a little bit about it. Um, I grew up Catholic, went to Catholic mass um, from ages, geez, like five, ages five to 17, you know, so I, I had done my first communion. Um, I was baptized, obviously, first communion, and then uh, I was confirmed in the Catholic church, um, primarily to appease my uh, my grandparents, you know, because they that's mm-hmm. something they really wanted to see. <clears throat> um, so I grew your up- parents weren't, it wasn't a big deal for your parents? Uh, it, it was more, more or less a bigger deal for my mom. But if I really was like, I don't want to do this, I think she would have respected my, my decision, but it was, you know, mm-hmm. my, you know, grandparents were around and yeah. wanted to appease them. So I grew up Catholic, you know, I did the whole mass thing, did CCD, everything. I mean, it's hard because and my mom actually said this one time. She's like, if I if I didn't raise you Catholic, maybe you'd believe in God. And I was like, oh, that's that's interesting. That's an interesting. I think thought. that's the experience of a lot of people. Unfortunately, <clears throat> like you know, I I hold Catholic Catholicism and Catholics near and dear to my heart because my dad's family grew up Catholic, and my my Pepe and Meme were super devout. Like, there's a deep, rich theology there. There's also a lot of Catholic guilt for sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Catholic guilt's real, right? Catholic like, guilt is very real. Yeah, I feel like that's a big difference with Protestantism. Protestantism, we we put a lot more of the stress on like the finished work of what Jesus has done for us, like almost too much stress on it. Um, it's more or less gratitude, would you say? Gratitude. Well, well, it's also like you know that sense that things are going to be okay, not yeah. because I'm good, but because everything that Jesus did for me is complete. I'm not going to, I can't lose my standing with him. Mm-hmm. Whereas in Catholicism, you kind of have this sense that like, if I mess up, if I screw up at any time, if I commit a mortal sin, right, then I'm done for. There's no, there's no, um, there's no coming back from that, you know? Mm-hmm. Whereas we don't have that concept of like mortal sins, venial sins, stuff like that. Um, which I think is one good aspect of Protestantism. Not that I, you know, I don't really hold tightly to that that identity of protestantism but i still you know i i have to recognize the riches of whatever or the good of whatever i experienced in that but yeah so tell me more about it um uh i mean there's not there's not too too much to say i mean it's going to catholic mass i always thought was really dry it was a chore it was 40 minutes every sunday morning um i didn't enjoy it i I felt like i didn't learn anything really Mm because I mean, the whole time at a Catholic mass or even at a, um, even during CCD where it's supposed to be instructive, everything's just kind of talked at you. Mm-hmm. You don't really, maybe they ask you questions, but it's questions about, you know, the, the Bible and the text and stuff, yeah. but nothing, nothing that was said or anything. Catechism. I, catechism, right. Um, nothing that I thought was said or was really applicable to me. Mm-hmm. You know, they didn't make it about my mm-hmm. life and, and, um, it's like, we just want you to learn what is the church and why do you need right, it, right? Right. What are the sacraments? Yeah. Repeat them back and forth and sideways. And mm-hmm. I don't know. It just wasn't. It was very rote. It was very rote. It's very mechanic. It's, <laughs> it, you know, just doesn't, it didn't facilitate that feeling of belongingness, like community. And I, and I think it's, I think for some people it does, but for yeah. me it didn't. And I, and I also was getting at that age where 
you start to question things more. Oh, yeah, like, sure. you know, when I was like 12, 13, I'm like, I don't know if this is actually real, you yeah. know? So I think, so I think that <clears throat> process also, you know, I will say for, for a person who's like, once, as you grow in maturity and you get this deeper sense of spirituality and connection to God, those rote pat practices actually become really much more meaningful. I've recognized and there's a deep, rich throughout church history, Roman Catholic and Eastern, um, Western and Eastern, the, the both, um, this deep a tradition of contemplative, contemplativeness, like, which is, it's a lot about meditation, solitude and silence, spending time with God, reciting prayers, not just for the sake of like, as if you're like manifesting something, but it's just like, it's centering yourself in order to receive something from God, like spiritual. More or less reflection. Yeah. But it's like, it's all more like creating space for God to speak into your life, to speak and listening. And um, there's something really beautiful and intimate about that. Where, But when you're a kid and you don't know anything and you haven't had a lot of experience, it's kind of hard to, okay, like what's my end goal? You know, what, what's the purpose of all this? Right. Like, that's, the, that's the question you're always asking. Well, exactly. Exactly. It's like, what, what is this going to do for me mm -hmm. in the long run? Mm -hmm. And for me, I didn't, I didn't really see that. I'm curious what would have happened if you had like grown up in like a evangelicals, like church or whatever. Like, I mean, I mean, to be, to be frank, knowing myself, I, I still don't think I would buy, I don't think I'd buy any religion yeah. for that matter, just because yeah. of my, of the questioning nature that I, but I mean, I if, if you had gotten, if it had gotten to you at a young age when you were more impressionable, like I wonder I wonder what would have happened. It's, huh. it's interesting. I mean, and maybe maybe me, in another reality. Maybe well, yeah, and another another um, what's the yeah reality of the dimension? multiverse? Multiverse. <laughs> yeah. If I hadn't grown up in a Christian tradition or like in one that that was very much experiential, if it was more like just about head knowledge, not about experiencing God, I think mm -hmm. I wouldn't have really. And it also, like, just there kind of was like a pressure in my family to. To like take it to heart, to really believe it, you know, and mm -hmm. and in the tradition. But yeah, it's fascinating. So around twelve years old, you started questioning things. Yeah, yeah, and then you get it's. I I, I believe I said this last time, but what uh what leads you to philosophy is religion and politics. So you you try to figure out political, mm -hmm. and that's when I started getting interested in politics too, and keeping yeah, yeah. up with it. So you. You start to look at oh what are the governmental mechanisms and you look at the mechanisms of religion how mm -hmm. they integrate and all these things and then yeah you find you kind of find philosophy along your way which is where i ended up mm. um but yeah that's cool yeah i mean i think i think a lot of us in our friend group we were we were very much interested in politics for quite a while i think we still are to a to a lesser degree a, a much lesser degree and yeah. i think i think it's because we kind of see it as arbitrary well at this know? point at this point at this point in time Politics is basically, you know, there's not really much hope in it, you know. And I was thinking about, actually, on a side note on politics, I was thinking about the other day, like, there's a there's a difference. We have to we have to make a distinction between republicanism, democratism, or whatever, mm -hmm. like those two parties slash worldviews slash I don't know political views 
versus the actual people who identify as Republican, the actual people who identify as Democrats. Those are two different distinctions that I think need to be we need to be made mm-hmm. in order for us to live as a like kind, merciful, compassionate society. Absolutely. Because too often do people get conflated with a party which you know whatever choice do we have we got two parties to choose from <laughs> unless you want to be that that angsty teen who votes That's for libertarian like we did but when you grow up <laughs> but when you grow up you're like you realize oh libertarianism is bs it doesn't work yeah it doesn't work it's nice it's in, a nice thought and it's, it's it's idealistic like in in this like non-real fantasy world like a video game it sounds <laughs> great but in real life it's just it's not going to happen. But you're definitely right. Like the the pe- people need to be separated from the politics mm-hmm. a lot of the times. Um, and and then the, the extra layer of that is why do people choose the sides of the, that they do? You know, is is a evangelical I guess person only calling themselves Republican because they believe in um, their pro life rather? That's you essentially know I mean? like in my discussions when you break it down. And and I remember actually, it's fascinating when I was when I was in eighth grade. No, sorry, ninth grade. It was Mr. Coger's class, mm-hmm. um, ninth grade history class, and he had us do this like a uh, test, and it was it didn't have the political parties it, back then. It was Obama versus McCain. McCain, yeah, when you were McCain in, versus McCain. Obama, I was, yeah, I was in ninth grade, and they were running. Uh, McCain was running against Obama. So as like a experiment, Mr. Coger had us take these this test, and basically the test was. Um, just based on the view, which which side would you vote on? Just based on the view, right. not on the political party. So there's no part party demarcation, and it's interesting. What as a young child, well, at the time I was like what, fifteen, yeah, uh, fourteen, fifteen. At that age, I actually my views, my personal views, actually lined it up more with Obama. Funny. The only one that really didn't line up with Obama was the pro-life one. <laughs> so this is what I, this is what I this frustrates me. I mean, on a political level, is like right, and there should um, be. And I mean, I think, and you can correct me in saying this, but I would consider you a pro-life Democrat, right? A pro-life yeah, liberal at the very sure. At the very I guess, I guess that's know? a. I guess that's a. Um, yeah, I think I think semi semi socially conservative. Mm-hmm. Um, but economically progressive, right? I think we need more progressive economics. Definitely. I mean, considering the state of this present economy, I mean, how can how can one lean back and say, "Oh, we need a uh, you know free market economics, or we need to disregulate businesses"? I mean, that's, that's no just absurd. No, that is absurd. No. Well, know. also like like we used to deify Ayn Rand, right? Like, oh yeah, we, we loved her for whatever reason. And she wrote Atlas Shrugged, which is basically a whole book about how the biggest, most powerful, richest people in the in the world just disappear and they take their wealth with them mm-hmm. and they leave they say screw you to the rest of the world. That's basically what the whole book's about. And we were like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we love that. That's terrible. Yeah. Not only is it horrible um politics, but also Theologically, it's it's spiritual deformation. You're you're deforming yourself into a non-compassionate, non-merciful, yeah. non-caring for the poor person. Which it's like if that point, if you're going to call yourself a Christian, just don't because right. you're not. And the angle that used to be taken was that objectivist angle, where you know, in being selfish and in serving myself, I'm actually helping society. 
Which, that, <laughs> that's what it was. That's yeah. yeah it's Ayn Rand ob objectivism. Objectivism. Yeah, that's what it was called. Wow. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's how that's I understood it yeah. at the very least. Did you ever read Ayn, uh, Atlas Shrugged? <sighs> no, I never. It's read like a thousand pages. So, so I'm just I'm shooting from the hip here. I never. No, read I mean it. I'm not a big reader either. It's just the little that I know of Ayn Rand. It's just really bad politics. Yeah. Uh, really bad economics and politics, but it's good if you're the rich guy. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. about it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and that, and that's what I've recognized um, politically. It's mostly people who, who vote in a, in a certain way that would advantage themselves economically. That's exactly what it is. It's for their own benefit. Not, they're not thinking about others. Right. They're not thinking about others. Yeah, and that's a, and that's the that's a it's a hard thing to do sometimes. So that that's like the that's like the argument that you always get yeah. is oh I'm just thinking about myself like I only got to worry about myself. But people always forget that there's other people and mm -hmm. we and we have to think about other people. And I think yeah, that's sure. the only that's really all there is in life is caring about other people, having that community, having that belonging, caring about your family. That's all. I mean, all this other stuff. Yeah doesn't really matter at the end of the day imagine just being alone with yourself mm -hmm. for eternity miserable that's hell it's hell that's hell being alone with yourself hell is a very individual experience it's you alone with yourself and, and but heaven is a very communal like the way it's described in scriptures it's a very communal experience like like even if you look at the parable of the rich man and lazarus i don't know if you're familiar with that no. Basically, there's this parable that Jesus tells, and basically he's he's he tells it to the Pharisees because he wants them to recognize how they're they're just hoarding their wealth mm -hmm. and they're just caring about themselves and they're not caring about the poor. Basically, there was a there was a rich man, and outside the gate of his home was this poor man, Lazarus, who had like sores on his skin, and every day the dogs would come and lick his sores. And he begged the rich man. He's like, can I, can you give me just, just scraps that are off your table? And he wouldn't even give him scraps from his table, like mm -hmm. not even the crumbs from his table. And then one day Lazarus dies and then the rich man dies and Lazarus goes, there's like this weird thing called the bosom of Abraham, they call it. So it's like, he's like in paradise nestled in the, in the bosom of, Abraham, the poor man, and he's resting, you know, resting in this intermediate state or something. Um, and then the poor, the rich man goes to Hades, which Hades obviously has the connotation from Greek Greek uh, mythology. Right. Hades was the ruler of the underworld. But that word Hades became, um, that language was then like kind of reused to mean this um afterlife like holding cell for the damned or for the reprobate like for evil people what's fascinating is lazarus is with abraham he's in a community right the rich man is just alone mm -hmm. you know and and i think that's that's something that people don't recognize like when we talk about how there are ways i guess in a way like you know we talk about the jesus talks about the the kingdom of heaven now like the kingdom of heaven is at hand meaning like it is it is already here in some way shape or form it's like a it's like a mustard seed that grows and eventually it turns into a big tall tree and takes over the whole space it's like it's like a a ball of dough 
that you put a little bit of yeast in and it starts and grows and eventually the yeast takes over the whole dough. Mm -hmm. So it's like, it's like that. And so like you see these little pockets of heaven in life. Um, but like, I think it's almost the same thing for the concept of hell too. Like hell almost exists in this life in very real senses. Like oh, when, definitely. When, when you're in the middle of a battlefield in war, like that's not the kingdom of heaven, you know? No. <laughs> that's, that's awful. I think um, what's really interesting about about those descriptions is that I think, and and this may bring us down the road of like you know talking about mm-hmm. like the existence of God and that atheism yeah. is, um, that those to me those concepts of heaven and hell mm-hmm. are consequences of the antecedent of human behavior, human thought, and mm-hmm. how we how we conduct ourselves. And that all, to me, comes from this naturalistic, natural selection perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, hell being, being as you described, which I think is, is, is parallel with the idea of aloneness, loneliness. Mm. What is not the, belonging? Not belonging, yeah. right? Right, and this applies to that whole OT thing too. Mm-hmm. What is what is more worse than being alone? Than I mean, than actually physically suffering. Also, yeah, being alone is a terrible thing. And if we see what loneliness actually is in our human society, it is a punishment, right? We punish people, we put them in jail and cells alone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A kid misbehaves, we put them in the corner alone. Yeah. We take things from people, mm-hmm. right? What is the worst thing that happens in amongst, I guess, teenage girls on social media, right? The FOMO, where mm-hmm. someone is left alone and everybody's... So we they're see... Left out, yeah. They're left out. They're left out of the... So loneliness is, is hell because it isn't belonging. Mm. And why does belonging matter? If we strip it down to to the naturalistic mm-hmm. perspective, to a natural selection perspective, um, group selection fosters a higher survival rate than if you're alone. Mm. If you're alone, your your likelihood of survival, your likelihood of getting food takes more energy. Your likelihood of reproducing is lower because it's only you. Yeah, we have so loneliness is a contradiction to what our genetics and what our conscious being desires Mm -hmm. as it seems to me which is to be in groups to belong to to reproduce to use less energy to survive yeah right and i think heaven is is being uh, in the group is being in the group it's being group selection and but not just being in the group but also like actually belonging belonging actually belonging not just like being a part of a group but actually belonging like actually Finding your identity in the community of others. Right. Like that's I think that's what we've evolved to. I mm-hmm. mean, if we think of monkeys like bonobos or, mm-hmm. or chimps, we don't know how they feel necessarily. But I would say that they are they're just in the group. They're just in the group because they know, oh, I I have a let more a higher likelihood of surviving if a tiger comes or yeah. Yeah. you know. Um but now as long as I'm faster than the slowest guy. As long guy. as I'm faster <laughs> than the slowest guy, right? Which is and if you're alone, you're the slowest guy, no matter what. <laughs> but here's an interesting, like... Um, but we've evolved to that point. Yeah. Here's an interesting thought, though. In politics, if we take a social Darwinistic, mm-hmm. naturalistic view to politics, what does it look like? It looks like libertarianism. It looks like Ayn Rand. You know <laughs> what I mean? Yeah. So it's like, do you think we've evolved to, like, a higher consciousness of of try? Where actually, this actually idea of, like, you know, sometimes I'm going to have to lay down privileges and rights for myself for the sake of others. Yes. Do you think that's also like a level of ev- evolution? Bingo. I think it's a very, it's a very 
crude way of saying it. Mm -hmm. And I think that we realize that if we're going to live in a society that better serves us, that better Mm -hmm. helps us, we have to be willing to help other people. So it's almost like an altruistic thing. It's almost like some would call it, it's like a selfish altruism type deal. Um, But as it seems to me, altruism is still altruism. Yeah. If we, if we want to live in a society where we are well kept Mm -hmm. and we are demonstrating the value that we want to be taken care of, we have to take care of others because Mm -hmm. when others see us taking care of others, they will also want to take care of us Mm -hmm. because we're taking care of them. So it creates this kind of transactional cycle of you're caring for me, I'm caring for you. Reciprocal altruism mm-hmm. is what that's coined yeah. um, as. And when we do that, we build a stronger foundational society where we can all be okay. Whereas, you know, let's say like the alt-right people or the libertarian people, they want to be individual. They want to be on their own. Yeah. But it's not sustainable. They want hell. <laughs> they want hell. They want hell. Actually, Maybe they want to be punished for no, whatever but, reason. But at the same time, they, they actually find community. Like alt-right people. They do find community. There are people who are on the fringes of society who find community outside of the larger group. And that's the, the fringes. And that's the big joke because all of them say, we're not globalists. We're not collectivists. But yet they applaud these you know ultra-right leaders. It's like, oh, you're not a globalist. Why are you acknowledging them? Or yeah. or they say, oh, you know, if you have friends, you have a community. So you can't say I'm an individualistic person inherently yeah. without saying you're also collectivist because like you got friends. Who's that one? Marine Le Pen who ran, ran for France. Yes. Of yeah. course, you have the DJT. Yeah. And then you have um, Putin. You know, and These people are praised by alt-right people. They, they right. make memes about them. Right. Um, Remember that, that guy, Milo Yiannopoulos? Oh, yeah. Him? That guy's been long he, gone for oh, a while. He got canceled. Yeah, big canceled. He got canceled. For and why does canceling happen? Canceling happens because it's a demonstration. You don't belong in the group. You don't belong Go in the hell. group yeah. because you don't express the group's values, ah, yeah. the larger group's values. But then it's a clash of – you do have a clash of these different consciousness of what what does it mean? What What is the value? Like what – you know what does the right say is a good value what does the left say is a good value right, right. And, and that's why have, we have in groups and out yeah. groups and subgroups and all mm-hmm. these things yeah and then there's just like a lot of people who just are in the mix and they they're humble and they choose to be agnostic about certain um con like there's some things that are just like i don't know, like like for the whole like for the whole like lgbtq but even larger the transgender debate non-binary yes. debate uh it's not even a debate but discussion rather um you know a lot of people want to say one thing about it like you got matt walsh was oh. that <laughs> i watched this documentary i i i didn't find oh, it all that what com- is a woman or what is a woman i didn't find it all that compelling so let the record show there are people like that who like it's like their goal and they try to they try to say like oh i just want to be a part of the discussion but then they get canceled because because there are a group of people on the other side who don't want them involved in the discussion. But I feel like that's not fair. Like the whole canceling thing, mm-hmm. except for like, I don't know, people who are just like outright anti-Semitic or racist oh, ter- like explicitly. Absolutely terrible people should be canceled because it's a, because it's a punishment. It's, it's a loneliness. Life. It's a hell. And for them to and realize that what you're saying is absolutely unacceptable. And maybe while they're in there, they'll recognize, Oh, I need to change my I'm mind. I'm a jerk. Right. See, to, so I can acclimate back to the group. But know, there are people's views who shouldn't be canceled because yeah. what what we need to also learn, we need to learn from each other yeah, also. Sure. And if somebody has something that's maybe slightly controversial, like like for instance, you and I, we have 
mm-hmm. oppo- you know, opposing viewpoints on, you know, let's say the existence of God. Yeah. I'm not going to cancel you yeah. because I need to learn whether mm-hmm. to strengthen my own position or change my position. Yeah. And same mm-hmm. with you. I mean, you're not going to cancel what I have to say because you need to, or you would most likely strength, like to strengthen your position or learn how to better, you know, understand your own position. You know, it's funny too. I feel like as, as the years go by and the more we discuss our view, our viewpoints almost are starting to merge yeah. into one thing. I don't know what, I don't think they'll ever touch, but it's like a logarithm <laughs> where like we're, we're just, we're approaching the line together at the same, but on opposite ends of the line. And I don't know if we'll ever really touch, but we, it seems like this logarithmic, um, I don't know, what's that called? You know, is it logarithm? Wow. Like logarithms are the ones where they approach the axis, mm-hmm. one of the axes is, but they never touch the line. It's just mm. it, it incrementally gets closer and closer infinitely, which is mind-blowing Yeah, because it'll never touch. But infinitely, it'll approach the line. Because if you just, like, if you, there's infinite space between zero and one. Oh, right? yeah. Yeah, that's, um, oh, boy, what is that called? The, the Zeno. Cal would know. It's uh, the Z, Zeno's paradox. Yeah. That's what it is. You can continue to split something a million times, yeah, and like, you'll always have a number. If I... If I'm standing in front of a wall and I and I step half the length yeah. to the wall and then I step half the length and then half that length and half that length and half that length, I will never touch the wall. You'll never touch the wall. <laughs> Theoretically. Theor- but you're always approaching the wall. I'm always approaching the wall. Yeah. So I feel like that's where our views are at. Even though you come from a atheistic framework, I come from a, a theistic framework. There really, there is so much overlap. I was, I was going to say, and maybe we can talk a, a more about that, where we share a lot of the same views, you and I, and we share a lot of the same values. I think we have similar politics and similar, similar views on, like, how we should operate in society. Absolutely. Uh, taking care of, like, the, the marginalized, those who have disabilities. I mean, we both work with kids with disabilities and autism. and But our reasons for it are, are different. They are different, yeah. But similar. Similar. I think, I think the reasons are similar but the reason why we have those reasons is different. Yeah. Which is interesting because it's like, if it works, it works, right? Like, <laughs> Pragmatism. Yep. Prag- there is something practical about it. I was also thinking about like when you're talking about the whole thing of altruism, the whole concept of love your neighbor as yourself. It's very, it's so simple, but it's like, yeah, how would you want to be treated? Treat others like that. Right. And then Jesus goes so far as to say, love this- your enemy. Oh, yeah, obviously, love your enemy. He brings it up to another level. But what he says, love your neighbor as yourself. He says, this is, this sums up the law and the prophets. The whole, the whole Jewish scriptures mm-hmm. summed up in this. Love your neighbor as yourself. It, it makes me recognize that the ancient Hebrews were trying to build a society. Yes. A just society. They were wrong about some things, for sure. I mean, they weren't, they weren't like, <clears throat> they weren't perfect. There was some stuff that was just like, it was very particular to their context. And I imagine that has to do with what was the larger context of societies that surrounded them, like Babylon, Assyria. Probably in disarray. I mean, oh, yeah. Probably crime. And you think like early Bronze Age era, people had just, they just started making swords, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So I I like to think about why did they come up with that? Yeah. Why did they come up with the idea of love your neighbor when everybody else was killing their neighbor? Yeah. And to me, the antecedent is more primitive than it is 
um, I guess, metaphysic. Mm-hmm. I, I think the reason why we saw that shift in, and I think why the Hebrews and Christianity is so revered because it works, mm-hmm. it works for societies. And I mean, that's, that's why it's happened yeah. all around the world. Um, minus the imperialism, but, yeah, of course. <laughs> but, um, that's followed it. Yeah. That's been, that's the, the ghost. That's the ghost. But it happened. I think all that came to fruition because to love other people, to care about other people more is going to increase your survival yeah. as well as other people's survival. Whereas let's say the people in Babylon, if they're all killing each other, no one's surviving. Mm-hmm. No one's having a quality of life. Yeah. So I was thinking about eschatology again. And the reason I was thinking about it is because the practical implications of good eschatology are that, you know, it's almost like manifesting in a way, right? Mm-hmm. There's a there's a level of it which is like, um, like a self fulfilling prophecy in a sense, mm-hmm. whereas like there's a, there's this eschatology eschatological vision at the end of Revelation and and other places in the Hebrew Scripture of like. The knowledge of the Lord will be like the knowledge of the world will, will will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Like um, this kind of vision that, that like people won't just like think like oh I have to do the right thing. They'll just do it, you know. And mm-hmm. um, but also like whatever the society is, because another thing about eschatology too is the really bad eschatology, which is mixed in kind of with platonism slash like plato slash gnosticism is this concept that like the whole purpose is for us to die and be disembodied spirits in heaven yes that's not in the scriptures at all and it's not in the early church at all so Hmm. the real the real concept is um the concept of heaven and earth uniting so so like i was telling you about the mustard seed or the yeast and the dough right it's it's happening now, but it's not completed. You know that we still have war. It's in a process have, of becoming. We still have injustice. Yeah, it's it's growing. It's manifesting, and I think it's manifesting by way of us. You know, by way of humans. In a in a sense, because like ultimately we have wills and we have choices to make, right? And and there's kind of like you think of like the spirit of things. It's kind of like a consciousness. A, a spirit is like a consciousness. Like there's, there's a consciousness that certain groups take on. Like when you have a group of skinheads, they have a spirit about them. You know what I mean? Like it's a group of, there's a consciousness where they want to, they're, they also have an eschatology too. They, their eschatology involves white, blue, hide, uh, blonde haired mm-hmm. Americans taking over the world and killing in an all like Jews and black gay people all being killed rather than integrated and belonging. Like, so that's their eschatology. Um, but then like you look at the practical implications of, of premillennial dispensationalism or rapture theology. The thing is at its worst dispensationalism looks like this eschatological vision of Jesus coming back, taking us away placing us as disembodied souls up in heaven and then destroying earth. The mm-hmm. whole project of earth, the whole experiment that Yahweh started in the beginning of Genesis, then he said it was good. Now he says it's not good anymore mm. in, in dispensationalism. So what are the practical implications of that? Well, you look at, um, you know, anti-environmentalism on the right, 
why are they against the environment? Well, or and against efforts to, you know, stop or slow down climate change. Why are they against that or like getting rid of fossil fuels? One of it's a ge geopolitical reason. It's because um, the Bible Belt is also the oil belt and the rust belt. So you have the place where most cars are manufactured. The place where oil is produced mm -hmm. is also where the most Christians are in America. Quote unquote Christians, you know, mm -hmm. like people who like they feel it's it's a big label of theirs. Now, so what does that look like practically? Well, it looks like Christians who are against environmentalism because they believe that ultimately God's gonna God's gonna be done with the earth. He's gonna destroy it, and we're gonna go live in heaven. So why do they care? So why do they care exactly? The other, yeah. So that's a that's why I think eschatology is a really important discussion because. There's a sense in which, let's say, let's say it's, it's, it's not real, you know, like yeah. eschatology is not real and mm -hmm. that there really is no, no time where Jesus is going to return physically and reign over the earth. Well, what, but manifestation is real, right? If we, if we live by a certain worldview and framework, absolutely. And as as a society, as a global community, we manifest that into reality. Then, yeah, we're gonna it's gonna destroy the earth, and we'll have nowhere to live. <laughs> I mean, that's why we have all, all these sci-fi movies of like in the future, humans trying to find another planet to live on. You know, like I was just watching um, Avatar the other day. Oh though, yeah. Even though it's controversial because of all the cultural appropriation, I still appreciate it for what it is. So what I think is interesting about all of this uh -huh. is that what guides our decisions and our behavior is the outcome that we want to see or that we are told to see through our belief system. Yeah. So eschatology, as it seems to me, is the belief system in the end of days. So like what is what is the means, what means am I going to live for the end? Right? Like for and this is where we get like philosophically speaking, this is where the postmodernism stuff comes in and yeah, the yeah. existentialism comes in. Mm -hmm. If the world is just going to be swallowed up by the sun one day in a red yeah. giant, and and in what's the point? As time goes on, and um, even if we do get away, the world, the universe is experiencing a state of entropy where everything is expanding and getting colder and losing its mass mm -hmm. and energy, or gaining mass, losing energy. Um, what what's the point? If we're all just going to get swallowed up by black holes, no matter where we go. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we end up at this point where it's what's the point? Why yeah. does it matter? And I and what's guiding those individuals' behavior, like you were talking about mm -hmm. with the oil and rust belt, is that end that they see themselves in. And that's why we care so much about finding the truth. Like, yeah. what is the truth behind the belief system? Um, I believe they hold that view because it it's a pragmatic view that holds um, their group together. Well, they'll lose their jobs. So their economy will suffer if they if they push in, for environmental Right, they'll causes. lose their jobs too. They lose their well-being. So then it comes down to the, the concept of laying down your rights and privileges, your wealth, your power for the sake and advantage of others, you know, right. that might disadvantage yourself. And that's the way of Jesus. That, I mean, one of the hardest things that Jesus ever told the disciples, he, he taught the, he said, he repeated the concept, which is actually from, from the Hebrew scriptures, which is love your neighbor as yourself. That was somewhere in Deuteronomy or Leviticus. I forget. I'm not a big scholar when it comes to the Old <laughs> Testament. I should, I do want to study more Old Testament. But anyway, um, I know enough to say the hardest saying that Jesus ever said 
I think he was in the upper upper room discourse. He's talking to the disciples, and he says, "Love one another as I have loved you." Mm-hmm. And in what way did Jesus love his disciples in the world? Well, he laid down his life. He was crucified by the powers that be on on a cross. He he subjected himself to torture and humiliation on behalf of others. He laid himself down and also historically he got like imagine like being god like the creator of heavens and earth and when you when you come incarnate to earth how would you come well you'd come as a king you'd come as a king to be served right that's how you, but no jesus came as a poor um outsider outcast and he lived in nazareth which is basically like Flint, Michigan, you know, the Flint, Michigan of, of Jerusalem. And um, he also likely was a slave up until he was 30. And that's likely why he didn't start his ministry until he was 30, because he was likely paying off his debts as a slave. And usually they'd set slaves three around thir- free around 30 years wow. old. So that's likely why Jesus didn't start his ministry until. So he actually lived as a slave and he, he wasn't a carpenter. He was a, he was a stonemason. Which is fascinating. That's fascinating. Because the actual Greek word, I learned this from my friend Zach, um, tecton in Greek means stonemason. It doesn't mean carpenter. But in the Middle Ages and early, like when when the King James Bible was being written, you know, in the 1500s or something, probably, yeah, 1500s, 1400s, when that was being written, they wanted to, they were putting their context into it, which what are what people who work with their hands? They're carpenters, right? right. So that's why we think of Car- Jesus as a carpenter. He was more likely a, a stonemason working for King Herod, who actually tried to kill him. <laughs> so fascinating. Yeah, it's really it's, fascinating. It's fascinating how the Bible transforms over time. Oh yeah, for and sure. It's in in its language. I mean, we've talked about. And this. we have to creatively reinterpret it. Right. In a lot, of, like it, it's just false to think that there's an objective meaning to it. Um, right. And there, that's there is something. There is something. I think that's actually what makes it more powerful is the fact that it can be adapted. This the gospel story, how we understand the gospel. You know, the, the slaves they read the scriptures and it had a totally different meaning than the Christian slave owners. You know, they read it and they're like, "Oh, Jesus was a slave." Also, um, the Jews were slaves, mm-hmm. and they were God's people. What does that mean about us? You know, they they're reinterpreting it and and applying it to their lives, making it relevant. That's uh, that's, I think that's what we're supposed to do. Absolutely. I, and I think, and it's funny, because I think what, what pe- when people are listening to us talk, they're uh-huh. probably thinking, how is this an atheist and how is this a Christian? Yeah. You know, like they're, they're, they're on the same page about everything. A lot of things, uh, yeah. But the, I guess the, the discrepancy that I can I'll try to discern is, mm-hmm. I think the Bible is a good tool. And, and for mm-hmm. the reasons why, you're, you, why you are describing it, mm-hmm. is it's, it's useful, it's applicable. Once you get into the you know, the meaning of everything, it's really quite an interesting text that tells you a lot about, you know, how people are in a society and who, yeah. and who, and how we should behave and act. Um, the, the counterpoint is that other people use it literally. Yeah, yeah. And they, and that doesn't, and that doesn't help people. Yeah, that doesn't, yeah. and it hurts mm-hmm. people. Right. Um, but because of its malle- malleability, I, I don't hold it as an objective source of truth. Mm-hmm. Right. I don't see it as an objective, all-encompassing, all-knowing thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and but I, I think, do think it is a pragmatic and useful I don't think, thing if used correctly. And I don't think that's how 
Jesus intended it to Absolutely be. Actually, not. Jesus didn't write any scriptures. So, mm-hmm. I mean, that tells you one thing. But also, um, I don't think that's how the early church intended it to. After all, the early church lived and was persecuted um, for the first 300 years of its existence mm-hmm. without a Bible. There was no compiled, finished canon of scripture until the 300s when the Council of Nicaea got together and they're like, okay, what's scripture? Okay, let's take this letter from Paul. Let's take the Hebrew Bible, these books from the Hebrew scriptures. Let's take this letter, this letter, not that letter, this letter. And and they compiled it together just based off of like their wisdom and and hoping, you know, trying their best to be faithful to the tradition. They're trying to start a social movement, you know? Oh, I mean? for sure. In that, well, in that regard. read the book of Acts. The book of Acts was written by the same, by Luke, who was a physician. He was one of the disciples. And he... And he wrote the the Gospel of Luke, which is basically the gospel, the story of Jesus written from Luke's perspective. And I'm sure he took like other people's um, stories and compiled them in there. But then he writes this post script thing called the book, the Acts of the Apostle. So then what he does is he like creates almost like a historical and spiritual, a historical record slash spiritual meditation on what did the what did the apostles do after Jesus died? What what's the next part of the story? And that really and it's sad that the Romans at the time were like, these people are trying to turn the world upside down mm-hmm. because you had a society where it was the rich and the powerful who were on top and the poor and the, the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. Oh, there's Marxism <laughs> in there for sure. There's It's Marxist-esque for, Zeth, for sure. But then the Christians were like, no, we're going to elevate the poor. We're going to, we're going to raise the poor. Raise up. the working class. And even in speaking of Mary in Catholicism, you have her famous speech called the Magnificat. Okay. There's a there's a part in that speech where she says, "God raises up the poor and he sends the he he sends the rich away empty." Mm-hmm. So like, <laughs> sounds Marxist to me <laughs> in a lot of senses for sure. Not that I think Marxism has all the answers. I just think a lot of people just just don't even pay any attention and, to and it. Like the, and like the Bible, I mean, Marxism in itself isn't wasn't intended to be like this is the ideology it was more or less a critique of how yeah. society was oh, yeah. you know Ro- you know the romans were to like the bourgeois well no marxist uh, yeah 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 you know what i oh, mean and, the and factories like, and yeah. all this stuff big corporations well you had child labor you had what 80 hour a week yeah. work day people never had a break they had no rights they had no paid time off they had i mean it makes sense of course i think i think if that was happening today someone would wake up and say hey there's something wrong with the labor uh unions and and industry and whatnot yeah but anyway i don't want to get too off topic for the last few minutes how about we talk a little bit more about like what what does a materialist spirituality look like i think encompassing that (laughs) ot perspective doing being belonging and becoming yeah i and encompassing the natural selection perspective mm-hmm. in view, the the atheist spirituality is the understanding that the need to alleviate suffering, it's very humanistic, mm-hmm. the need to alleviate human suffering is a necessity. If, if I'm going to live in a good society, that's great for me and also great for others, mm-hmm. right? It comes from the idea that through participation in the world, Dasein, that's what Martin Heidegger would mm-hmm. say, through that active engagement in the world, we are able to kind of create something where we all belong. And, and I believe that that sense of belonging is corroborated by Christianity. It's corroborated by all religions because all religions identify that as a necessity. And it's, 
and we see it across the animal kingdom, right? Animals that live in groups and, mm-hmm. and such. I mean, that is just such a key necessity. So what spirituality is, and I, and I wrote about it in a, in the article I have, um, occupational therapy's role in understanding the subjectivity of human suffering, where we, we, I try to redefine what spirituality is because spirituality to the profession, as well as to other people is always about transcendence. It's mm-hmm. all about God, um, metaphysics, I should say. Yeah. But what I try to frame it as, or how I believe it to be is a sense of self-transcendence. Um, what, what becoming what you have not become yet, right? Mm-hmm. That sense of becoming and the, I, the thing that the belonging is all there is. I mean, we can belong to a sports team and have that sense of spirituality. Yeah. You belong to a church and have that sense of spirituality. I think having time with family and have, oh, you know, your children, um, all these things, spirituality is just that connection to the thing that is greater than yourself. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's this metaphysical thing. I think it's here. I think it's yeah. right here experienced in the, in the day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think I would honestly agree with all that, except I think it's both. It's both here right. and it's, and it's everywhere in the sense that God is everywhere, you know? Right. Um, and that's why, what I mean, like, as we approach each other, as, as we grow and approach, it's like a triangle motion. Like we were at opposite ends each of the end. bottom, each end of the triangle and we we're moving towards each other, but we might we'll never not, touch. We'll never touch <laughs> because there's that, there's that line where it's like, right. God, no God. Right. But it's like, that's ultimately, <laughs> that's ultimately the difference. I, yeah. I think we've joked, I've joked and said, Oh, am I a Christian? But, I mean, the only thing that makes me not a Christian is I don't believe in God. Or, well, you don't profess don't, that Jesus is Lord. That and I don't profess that he's Lord. I think, I think Jesus was a great guy and smart, like Gandhi and, you know, MLK days coming up, similar to an MLK yeah. figure. Oh, yeah. Um, but I, I don't think he was God. Yeah. I don't think he was as much, you know, God as you or I. I mean, technically, mm. we both we both are. Right? That's a really interesting discussion because, I mean, if you ask Cal, he gets into this too. Um, there's this really weird passage in the gospel of John, where Jesus says, where, where the, the Pharisees are like, wait, are you claiming to be God? And he says, didn't you know we are gods? You know, didn't you know we are gods? That's what the scriptures say. We are gods. I'm not saying anything. And basically what he's saying is like, yeah, I'm God. And so are you, (laughs) which is weird. And, uh, and very uncomfortable. And in the last, a lot of people. in the last podcast, we got into the uh, you know the physics component of that with like the double slit mm-hmm. experiment and the the. Did we talk about double slit? I don't even remember that. Well, the the Copenhagen interpretation <laughs> okay. of quantum physics incorporates you know the yeah. uncertainty principle and all those. When things. you're looking at it, it only goes through one side or whatever. Yeah. Well, yeah. you you only get the measurement that you need. Yeah. Um, you only you, the measurement changes, so you can't know an upspin or a downspin at the same time. You okay. can only know one. I won't get into yeah, it, but that's so it's it's the idea, and that's what Cal would say. Chris Langan was saying is yeah. you know you you see it in John Wheeler, you see it, and it becomes actual. The the contradiction to that, from I guess a harder materialist perspective, mm-hmm. is that it isn't necessarily the conscious action that's doing that. It is the material acting on material actually causes the that particular measurement to be taken. Mm-hmm. So we we always attribute it to the, the consciousness, but to me, in using like the frameworks of Dan Dinette and John Cyril and other philosophers in mind, um, our minds are conscious. Our, mm-hmm. our our minds are consciousness, but they're also material. Yeah. Material is consciousness. So material acting on the material yeah. created the uh, the number. Yeah, the early. <laughs> that's fascinating. <laughs> we I won't get into that. We'll save it for under, another time. But. I don't understand any of it, but that's fascinating. <laughs> anyway, I 
when when you and Cal talk met- metaphysics, my brain turns off. I'm just like, sure, whatever you say. <laughs> Not really, but like to a degree, it takes it takes a lot of effort for me to like. I think it's just because I'm not like primed for that discussion yet. You know, I, I don't really get into metaphysics and all the yeah. people and whatnot. It's probably similar to like when I talk about the Bible, you're like, what? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, really. Cause I mean, it's all this knowledge that we both have stored away yeah. in our brains and we can just regurgitate yeah. what comes up. So exactly. It's funny. But, um, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's what the atheistic spirituality seems to mean. Um, and it's a spirituality that's shared by religious people too. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's just the, to me, it's just the idea that the, the religion aspect is a consequence of the natural selection aspect. Yeah, and similar to Christian or theistic spirituality, every individual's experience of it is different, and, yes. and, and the conclusions they come to are different too, you know? So, like, you're an atheist just because you don't believe that there's a transcendent being mm-hmm. outside of material, right? right? Outside of material existence. And it's and it's funny because we we at some point um, we were going to talk about the arguments for God. Oh yeah, and and the the argument for for God. Um, yeah. So tell me, like, what what are the argument? What's an argument for God that you think is compelling? So I guess there's five or six main arguments. There's the cosmological, yeah. ontological, teleological, moral. Um, blanking on the oh, and experience. Um, I think. I mean, just to run through them briefly. I don't think the ontological argument is a very good one because yeah. because it just explains itself with itself. It's yeah. it's a tautological fallacy. Yeah. It doesn't the cosmological argument, um, you know, that the beauty of the universe, the intricacies <clears> of everything. <throat> I think it's a pretty good argument. I have to say, mm-hmm. the only refutation to it is if that were the case, why why do I have to wear glasses if everything yeah, is so yeah, perfect? Yeah. You know, like mm-hmm. little things like that. Why do diseases exist if everything yeah. is so fine tuned? Um, because everything isn't fine-tuned. It's actually chaotic. We're moving, the universe is moving into a state of chaos more than it is to order. Um, but at the same time, you were saying that we're evolving into something more complex, higher-level consciousness. Does complexity, to, I linguistically, and how we think of it, complexity means more order. <laughs> yeah. We ourselves are kind of moving to a place of order because we are actively doing it, yeah. but the universe itself is not. Mm-hmm. It's moving to a place of disorder because everything's losing energy. It's expanding, losing it's expanding, energy. expanding, getting cooler, right. But, I mean, there's still a couple billion years left, right? Yeah, yeah, we got plenty of time. Yeah, yeah we got plenty of we'll time. We'll be fine. <laughs> we'll figure we'll, it out. We'll be long gone. Um, all right, te- uh, teleological argument, um, or I'm, I'm sorry, cosmological argument, the first cause. Does there need to be a first cause? I think that's that's kind of a good one <clears> because <throat> – but I also, the refutation to it is that we see in quantum physics that things in the universe don't need a cause. We see in the mic- cosmic microwave background that things can, uh, you know, particles pop in and out of existence without a, co- without a cause. And same thing with the Copenhagen <clears throat> interpretation where you get that measurement, pop, you get, you measure it and there it is over there. You determine the spin. Yeah. So it's just funny how things in the universe just kind of don't need a cause all the time. They can just pop into existence right it, and it's it's unex, it's kind of unexplainable yeah. um so that's that's my reputation of that moral argument the moral argument is the one that i think is the worst only because really? and i and i and i know it it seems like it would be the best because oh if people if we didn't have morality mm-hmm. we didn't have a unified morality the, we'd fall into you know a hobby and hobbesian state of nature yeah anarchy anarchy chaos right like the libertarians are 
but <laughs> entropy, entropy, yeah. entropy. Yeah. Um, but the the issue with that is I don't I don't think one one culturally across the world we all don't share similar values, right? And I think that if morality wasn't written down, I think people at least in smaller groups would have a general sense of morality per group selection, a yeah. multi-level selection theory, where we have to have reciprocal altruism. You have to do me a favor and I have to do you a favor. We have to have community and tit for tat or else we won't survive. Mm -hmm. um, and the last one is the argument from experience. And yeah. ironically, I think the argument from experience is probably the best argument for God because like we talked last time about Papirian falsification, mm -hmm. I can't say it's wrong. Yeah, <laughs> I can't tell, and that's what—that's the issue with postmodernism yeah. too. Yeah. Um, I can't tell you you're wrong about your experience of God. Yeah, that is. So I think it's probably the best mm. argument for God. Maybe not logically speaking, because I honestly, I don't think logic always has to rule king. Yes, yeah, because yeah. it's a construct. It's a social. It's yeah. a social construct. Um, it's just one way. It's a paddle that we have to use in the water, you know, yeah, in order yes, to move around. Yes. But it's not the only way to move around. Correct. <clears throat> Correct. It's just a paddle in the water. Uh -huh. So I think in our boat, in our in our big, we're floating in our metaphysical in our big, soup. In our big arc in uh, the uh, the universe. The metaphysical soup that we're that we're floating in. So I think the on our personal rafts together, <laughs> <laughs> all holding hands. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, argument from from experience, I think, is one of the best ones. Yeah. And then behind that is maybe the. Uh, um, theological argument, fine tuning. I think oh, is yeah, I think is I think is maybe the next strongest. The whole one. the fact that like we we're ninety three million miles away from the sun. If we were ninety four miles million miles, oh, we'd freeze. Coincidence. If we were if we were ninety two million miles away, we'd burn. Like we're right in that sweet oh, spot. Oh, the coincidences yeah. are insane. Yeah, oh. absolutely insane. And yeah. I and I will admit that. And that's <clears> and that's why I've always kind of taken like that slightly pantheistic view of like the beauty, like it's yeah. it, like in the and that's the belonging that that appeal. Yeah, um, it's a really beautiful thing, but um, yeah, but fine too. Yeah. What about what about you? So for me, I I'll start with what I think is the best argument, and I think ex the experience one. I think you're right. Yeah. Not just like in like a you know just success suggest like a like a su like subjective experiences, but also when people experience things as a group. Right. That's mind blowing because you're all affirming each other's existence. Like I've heard so many stories experience. of like when multiple people are experiencing the same thing. You know what I mean? That's wild. Like it's powerful. And, and oftentimes in church, like especially the one I grew up in, which was very charismatic and Pentecostal, very much about experiencing the spirit. We we were there together, experiencing it together. You know, this we're having this experience together. It's un it's almost un it's undeniable to me. You know, and then personally, like my experiences, but also. Part of the big reason why I do this podcast is to hear the experiences of others. And I think that's the strongest argument because also it's most accessible accessible yes. to everybody. Like everybody can hear a story of someone's experience and be like, oh wow, that's compelling. You know? As far as like the hardest, the the hard the the hardest one to grapple with is the problem of pain and evil and suffering. Right. That's the biggest refutation which I have. Is hard because it's like if God is beautiful the beautiful, the good, the perfect. Why suffering? I think, but I think God is a storyteller. Yes. And every good story, there's no good story out there that's just like people live their life. Sunshine and no, rainbows no, all the way no through. No conflict, right? Mm -hmm. I think there's a story to tell that God is telling through us. And I also believe that he's going to reconcile these the suffering. He's going to reconcile the pain. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be even more beautiful on the other side. Now looking back and saying, oh, wow. 
that's where we were and this is where we are now, you know? Right. Even in, in a, like, because I think that we're going to have resurrected bodies. I think we're going to resurrect like Jesus did. And I think we're going to be at our telos. But at the same time, we're also going to continue, um, we're going to continue growing infinitely, mm-hmm. which is wild to think about. And I think that's why, like, when we think of ourselves as we are gods, you know, mm-hmm. We're, it's like here's God, and we're gonna be approaching Him for eternity. But you'll never touch we'll him. never touch Him, but but we'll be so close. It's like Plato's and, cave, and you know, you know, in in Eastern Orthodox theology um, and doctrine, the concept of heaven or salvation is theosis, which is union with God, becoming one with God, and that that's the kind of the whole purpose of Jesus was to to heal humanity in order for it to be united with God. And you have uh, ancient early church people like Athanasius who, who said this famous statement, God became man so that man could become God. Hmm. And some people have qualified by saying, well, so God, so man could be, become like God. It's like, that's not what he said. He said, so God became <laughs> God. I don't know what you do with that. It's not comfortable. But anyway, Chris, any, any final thoughts? Uh, I don't think so. I think we covered a lot. Um, Thank you for having me on. I look look forward to talking again soon. Absolutely. Whether on the cast or in our our living room. Of course. (laughs) Well, peace, brother. All right. I'll see you later. Have a great morning. Dying in the dust